Welcome to the Fleming Foundation podcast series, The Best Revenge. This is shorthand for the old proverb, living well is the best revenge. Our other series and print columns take up big issues such as ethics, literature, politics, but in this series, we stick to the low road of innocent pleasures, eating, drinking, smoking, fishing, watching movies. I'm Rex Scott, and today, Dr. Thomas Fleming will be grilling Chef Garrett Fleming on America's greatest contribution to fine dining, pizza, yeah, totally American pizza, Domino's and Pizza Hut, DiGiorno, I mean, all those delicious, oh, oh, no. Okay, well, welcome and welcome to Chef Garrett. You want to give us a once what tell us what pizza is? Mm, that, yeah. Now, other than something that comes frozen in a box that you'd be better off not eating, <laughs> which is what uh, they have in the Rick Scott household. Mm. So, outside of that, uh, I think pizza is uh, a convenient snack that's readily eaten all across the world and comes down to a, a type of usually flatbread that's seasoned with things to make it taste delicious. Uh, there are a lot of Italian flatbreads, you know, uh, focaccia being the most famous, but every every region has its own. Uh, is there a really sharp dividing line between pizza on the one side and flatbread on the other? Sure. I think I think pizza took off and, you know, it became international. Uh, and it's obviously at this point pizza is... Uh, it just has so many, I, I think focaccia has, it's not that it's limited, but it's, it's genuinely taken as a, as a you know, crusty, oily, uh, aerated bread, and it's eaten as a snack or a conjunction with things. And pizza is a, can be heavy, can be light, can be, uh, it can be a meal of itself or can start a meal. It's just a lot more dynamic of a, and much more internationally appreciated than any flatbread. I wonder if part of the reason for that isn't that the uh, you know, p- pizza especially is associated with Naples, southern Italy, and Sicily. These are very poor regions. It's also where they they eat a half, they eat a pound of pasta in a bowl at a time, and so pizza right. is very cheap to make. Whereas in say in northern Italy, they're eating veal and chicken and pork. Uh, whereas in Naples they're eating pasta or pizza because it's the, it's a very cheap way to eat delicious food. Yeah, that's probably got a lot to do. Let's talk about uh, ingredients. Tell us about uh, the f- kinds of flours that you would use and why. Now, I know I know that the, uh, the, and the the pizza experts of the world are now claiming that there's one specific flour you're supposed to use. What is that? That's a double O caputo flour. That is a type of durum flour. Uh, it is a durum flour, but it's a it's a finer ground durum flour. So is it more like a pastry flour? It is soft because it's ground finer, but it's not it's not a soft. Uh, it's not quite that soft because obviously pizza is typified often by its crust and its juice, as opposed to you know pastry flours, which are used to uh, kind of develop really soft milk your mouth texture. Yeah. But it's not the very high gluten bread flour either. No, but a lot of a lot of chefs and pizzaolas have opted for using harder flours in their pizza making to uh, kind of develop that crust and develop that chew. Uh, one of the ancient grains, uh, which is more really done in the United States or, or, or other places that people mess with, has been spelt. But uh, I know that they've used spelt in uh, small amounts of spelt. 
small amounts of rye sometimes, yeah. uh, and bread flour, obviously. Spelt is one of the primitive predecessors of, uh, of wheat, like emmer, and uh, there, there are a variety of them that they learned how to interbreed them in the Mediterranean and come up with a much higher yield uh, wheat, lower, lower nutritionally, but higher yield for the farmer. Yeah, I think it's one of the few exceptions. Yeah. Spelter's undergoing something of a revival in Italy. I know that you see it more and more in menus, like spelt grains in a classic Tuscan sort of uh, stew. Yeah, it's, it, has a, it has a lovely texture. So tell us about the, uh, tell us about the yeast. You've got flour and, uh, wa- and water. Uh, tell us about the yeast that we would use. Well, uh, just like any type of bread that's taken seriously, we really focus on the yeast fermentation, you can get there in a variety of ways, but you want you want the yeast to be activated so it can kind of start developing flavors and growing and feeding. So, I, I, again, you know, active dry yeast is fine, but a lot of recipes insist on the sponge cake yeast. I think maybe, some, maybe because it was more readily available, but some of the older recipes probably rely on the sponge cake yeast. Whether that adds to their validity, I, I really couldn't say. I know that um, something like, uh, what's her name, Carol Field has this book, uh, The Italian Baker, and almost all of her bread and pizza recipes start with the biga, or the sponge, as, uh, and I don't, it's certainly convenient to have this stuff in your refrigerator that you, that you can keep on using and you don't have to worry about proofing yeast or anything like that. Some of it does have different flavor. Obviously, the di- what makes sourdough bread is the souring agents uh, in the in the biga in the sponge. Is that is the souring from a, from a different yeast, or is it from a bacteria in the air, or both? It's, it's from both. So the more yeast feeds, um, you know, the more the more the more uh, the older it is, the older. The longer you allow the yeast to feed, the more it's reacted with the yeast, with the bacteria in the air, and the kind of more mature it becomes. I mean, just like an, an older piece of lamb is going to take taste more developed than a younger piece of lamb. And yogurt the same way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The longer you allow it to develop, to develop, uh, you know, there could be things where you've hit a point. Obviously, with lamb, but I'm sure it's with yeast as well, where you've gone too far. Okay. And, uh, you know, that's where they get the sourdoughs, which are, oh, you know, they're, they're real zingy. Uh, but some people love it, and love it. Sometimes you just created something different. In San Francisco, where I lived for a while, they had a, a wonderful bread company, the Lara Baru Brothers. And they had the best sourdough I've ever eaten. Nothing has ever come close. And uh, it's very strange. They made the, it was very nicely made bread, quite apart from the sourdough. And then some labor strike put them out of business, so they uh, they gave their uh, starter, their yeast starter, to another company to preserve ad infinitum, so in case they should ever start back. But it was uh, it was lovely stuff. You could buy it in the airport. You could buy it everywhere. And uh, it's it's a shame that they they had to uh, they had to be destroyed. So we so it in general, if you're gonna make a lot of pizza and a lot of bread, you might as well go to the very small trouble of creating a starter with uh, usually people start with their their own just yeast from a package and uh, and flour and a little sugar. 
But after a while, uh, from if I can believe what you're telling us, the wild yeast in the kitchen, uh, bacteria in the kitchen, it'll it'll change it subtly, and it'll become all yours. Exactly. All right. Well, what about salt? Is there anything special about salt other than don't use too much? You don't use any in a biga. You when you make your dough, you've obviously you're baking off a piece of of live bread, and then you're adding more flour to it to make sure, uh, you know, to control it. Some, some people, obviously, the stronger flavor, the more biga, but it's also way score of your biga. You could obviously let your dough develop. But some people want to make pizza, and you're, you know, really in a rush. Obviously, some of these recipes call for you to take your biga and then make a dough out of it and then rest it overnight. Uh, but if you are doing, you know, if not, it's not longer than that, uh, you know, two days to make sure that elasticity is perfect. But if you're just, you know, some people can add you know, 50% bega, and all of a sudden, you know, they have a lovely developed crust in two hours. You know, like, well, how do they do that? And they've just wasted a lot of, yeah. you know, bega. I know in uh, in bread, in French and Italian bread recipes, it's tip more like uh, one cup of the starter to to four, five, six cups of flour. I mean, it's, it's not a huge percentage. I mean, you use barely. Yeah, yeah. You don't put any oil in the uh, in the biga. What about oil in the preparation of the dough or the final cooking? Well, uh, you don't want your. I mean, it's important because the olive oil disallows your your bowl from oxidating. Uh, but you know, obviously, the more oil you add, the more you're affecting. Uh, you know, you're letting the crust and the chew come from oil help, and not so much as your 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 uh, your dough that you've developed. So you really want to be careful. With, yeah. So you're cheating. Oil is for cheaters. <laughs> the result's going to be different. Yeah. Yeah. So like the, uh, the the deep dish pizza, which I'm not I'm not going to go off too much because that's not what we're talking about. That's got a lovely crust to it, but it's buttery and flaky like focaccia. Yeah. One, because it's laminated with butter. And the two, like it just sits in oil as you cook it. And so there's no developed dough flavor. There's no developed crust flavor. You just have the same interaction as when you make a grilled cheese sandwich. I'm much better at making focaccia. My uh, my pizza's no good when I make it, or I make scacciata, the Florentine thing. And the recipe basically goes back to the ancient Greeks. But uh, we could talk about that on a future program where we talk about alternatives to pizza. One of the things that makes it so special is that it requires such a high degree of skill. My scacciata has it not just oil, but milk and lard. And so it's impossible not to make a delicious uh, treat out of, out of those ingredients. It's much harder when what you make when you've got is a cracker crust. To make it supple still, yeah. Because the milk, the, the milk and the lard and the sugar and, you know, like just like brioche is so delicate, but it's the form that's difficult. The dough itself should be with all that milk and butter and sugar added to it. You know, it should be pretty supple. Yes. So we've got the ingredients down. Uh, is there anything special about the water other than uh, we don't want to use New York water? I've read crazy recipes where they talk about buying bottled water. Does that make any sense to you? It does make sense to me. And not all bottled water, but you do it when, you, uh, when you're dealing with these live things. Most yeast is strong enough to handle mildly chlorinated water, but bacteria, uh, particularly when you're taking your biga and making it into a dough, bacteria is very delicate. And chlorinated water, which the majority of tap water in the United States is, 
kills bacteria. Ah, I hadn't thought of that. So non-chlorinated, even distilled water would work. Exactly, exactly. Distilled water is great. Yeah, it doesn't have any flavor, but it would work. Let's, Let's switch and talk about basically the crust. I mean, you could have great pizza with nothing on it, and people call it pizza bread, or they they sell it uh, additionally, but people think of pizza as having toppings, although I think the word topping is misleading, because what you put on the pizza is part of the whole thing. The most classic pizza, at least the one that you one reads is classic, is the margarita. What's What goes on to a pizza margarita? Oh, it's supposed to be San Martino tomatoes, olive oil, basil, and uh, one of the two different mozzarellas, the one out of Buffalo's milk or cow's. See, I didn't quite get that. The one out of uh, the Buffalo mozzarella you should use or shouldn't use? When we were in Italy last, we saw both being referred to. They, uh, what do they call it? A fiore? Oh, the, well, they make a fiore, fiore di latte, flour of milk, which is easier right. alternative. It's hard to get good buffalo mozzarella, even if it's made from buffalo milk. It's hard to get good stuff from anywhere but the Naples region. Even in Rome, you can buy it, but the timing is so crucial for that. So you want to use a, one or another kind of fresh mozzarella. You don't want to use this, uh, this stuff that they, that they sell but packaged in supermarkets. No, no, no. Which is just... It's like Velveeta without with less flavor. So, and of course, it was named after Queen Margherita of Italy because it was the colors of the Italian flag: green for the basil, red for the uh, tomato, and uh, white for the cheese. Some people today like uh, what they call white pizza, which is just uh, cheese, no tomato. Is this traditional, or is this some bright new idea? I think the first time I saw it was. In Italy, so I'd have to imagine it's somewhat traditional. Yeah. We know one thing. We know they were eating cheese 3,000 years ago in Italy, cheese on top of a flatbread, because we have recipes. And, in fact, I, I've got a little comment on our on our website about a recipe you can take out of Virgil where you make a farmer's cheese and you put it on, a, on your homemade uh, rustic flatbread. So we know that for thousands of years they've been doing that, but they didn't get the tomatoes till about the 17th century. And it didn't come to dominate Italian cooking till later. Even today, ideas in America about Italian cooking are much too tomato-based. There's lots and lots and lots of Italian food without tomatoes in it. So I would think the original pizza wouldn't have had, well, it certainly would have had no tomato. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what, uh, what are some classic combinations of tomato? In America, of course, it's... Uh, we want everything on it. I want. I was asking somebody last night. He said, "Oh well, I like pepperoni and sausage and ham and the, the you know the pizza 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 phenomenon." This is diametrically opposite to what Italians normally do. You, if you want a sausage pizza, you get a sausage pizza. If you want to get an onion pizza, you get an onion pizza. But the idea of sausage, pepperoni, onion, green peppers, eggplant, etc. They just don't do that. So tell us about some some of your favorite pizzas. In other words, if you were to go in, if you didn't order a margarita, what would you order? I never order a margarita. Although, I, I mean, I enjoy it when it's there. I enjoy it when I have it. Yeah. My favorite is uh, the pizza aviabola, which is uh, Calabrian uh, chili salami, which is um, 
And it's different, obviously, when we're talking about American ingredients and, and Italian ingredients, because I thought I never wanted to try a pepperoni pizza in Italy. And then the first time I had one, it was night and day compared to what oh, the pepperoni yeah. sold in the United States. I mean, it was very, very delicious. Well, uh, is is essentially a margarita with just the addition of this spicy, usually chiffonaded or torn Calabrian salami. Sometimes they put on whole spices, which always weirds me out, but it's still... Uh, they cut it so thin you don't really notice. Depending on the region you're getting uh, this kind of pizza, pizza to the devil, so to speak, is uh, the translation, uh, they'll use different piquant sausages depending on where you are, but the Calabrian is uh, very famous and classic. Yeah, 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 yeah. By the way, if you go to Italy and order a pepperoni pizza, what are they going to put on it? They'll put peppers on it. They'll put bell peppers. Yeah, yeah, bell peppers. Yeah, they'll put bell peppers. It's pretty funny. I've seen this happen to people. And then and then they'll order a latte, and you try to tell them latte means milk, and they always tell me, they know what I want, and then they get a cup of hot milk, and they're unhappy. Okay. Well, if I ordered a margarita pizza, I'd wonder how many shots of tequila I'm going to get. That's what I <laughs> I don't know what... Yeah... <laughs> You're not, we're not, you're not coming with us. <laughs> I like, you know, often uh, it can be alarming to get a regular sausage, you know, fresh sausage pizza, because they put the sausage on raw. It's cooked a couple of minutes, and it can be quite red. It's certainly very pink often when it's served. I always regret not getting that when someone gets it, and then it's like that. Yeah, it's wonderful. It, ta- it has so much more flavor when it comes that way. And, uh, of course, people want to worry about uh, getting this mythical disease, which has never existed uh, in uh, in Europe. What is the disease? You get trichinosis? Yes. Yeah. It doesn't exist over there. All this fear of underdone pork hardly exists in America. I don't know. The last case was 40 or 50 years ago. I don't remember when. I'm particularly fond of uh, eggplant on a pizza. I'm not a vegetarian, but I love a rich, mellow eggplant. I've had it on top of a tomato sauce. I think the most delicious ones I've had, they've just been on top of a cheese base on top of the pizza. You could have vegetable pizzas, like a mushroom pizza. You could have it with tomato sauce or just cheese. I think in America... Uh, the toppings tend to be the star of the show, but what I hear you kind of saying is we like this flatbread, we want something, some cheese to complement that, and we want something, and I was even thinking of like uh, basil or something on there, and maybe even a little bit more olive oil on top to kind of blend everything together and uh, almost make this crust the star of the show. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, the crust is obviously the big show. Uh, the toppings are very, very important as well. It's the, the weight of American pizza in general. And they're doing, there are some great spots. When you weigh a done pizza, it should be, it should be around a pound. And yet oftentimes, if you think about getting a, a pizza from Pizza Hut or anything, or any, any type of pizza, you're talking a several pound pizza. And it's usually this flavorless, they're loading it up with sauce, loading it up with cheese, and loading it up with toppings. What you get is not I mean, honestly, I've been at my favorite pizza places and I've eaten an entire pizza and then wanted to order another one and done it and <laughs> nice. eaten all that. Yeah. And I don't feel, I, I, I don't feel gluttonous. 
even though I might, I maybe I should. Yeah, you may, you may look gluttonous, but you won't feel glutton. Well, speaking of making this, let's go back to the dough. I mean, okay, you've got you've got your sponge or your yeast. You mix your ingredients. Is there anything special about how to mix and knead the uh, knead the pizza? I've got a very complicated recipe that I worked on for a couple months that involves adding ice in and mixing it three times. But I don't think you need to do that. You essentially take your pizza, you take the appropriate amount of flour. Uh, usually sugar or honey, whatever whatever kind of softening agent, which would be a sugar or a honey, you make it into a large kind of real sloppy dough. You kind of let that sit, and what you do when you let it sit is your, uh, there's a fancy science word for like hydrolization. There's something where you're allowing all the moisture of the dough to go to the very edges of your dough. And it's really important if you want to create like really complex structures, like red structures of gluten. Then after that point, you beat it up a little bit more and then the important part comes the rest. So you let your dough rest, obviously covered, not too warm because you want it to be relatively slow. Some people do it very, very slow and will refrigerate it. You know, I'm, I'm talking, obviously, for somebody that's trying to do pizza in a day and a half. You'd want it to rest until it essentially doubled, and then you would want to punch it down and portion it into your pizza balls. And then you get to rest those pizza balls again. And you definitely want to rest those pizza balls once they're portioned. Uh, I usually do, if we're talking about Neapolitan style, like seven, eight ounces is a good size for a, a, a large, you know, 12-inch pizza. And it's really important that now it's now the really crucial timing comes that when do you want to eat that pizza? So if you want to eat that pizza and you've already portioned your ball uh, and you want to eat that pizza that night, then don't put it in the refrigerator. You want to leave it out room temperature, covered, so you don't oxidize any of the dough or let it get dried out. So instead, you want to let it room temp and you're kind of forcing it to get stretchy more quickly than it normally would. But you're, you're really, uh, you're sacrificing flavor of the dough at this circumstance. The best stuff has always been refrigerated at least overnight. Well, I'll, I'll start doing that because it makes it, actually it makes it easier. If you're having a, making a dinner party or whatever, and you want a pizza as a first course, it's nice to have everything mixed up the day before and then, and then just sitting in the refrigerator uh, overnight. So let's talk about baking. Obviously, the Italian rule is you have a, a wood oven that brings it up to, what, 800 degrees? How hot do those things get? They can get up to 1,200 degrees, but I've had problems cooking that high. I'd say anywhere from 800 to 1,000 is pretty great. So what people need to do is they have to have a, a pizza oven uh, that somebody has made for them in their backyard, or they have to own a restaurant. Or they what? Let's let's say we take those two options off the table. What are some of the ways we can cheat and make a successful pizza? I know you make pizza on a charcoal grill. Yes, I've done that before because that'll get hot. Well, you also need something to displace the heat because it'll get too hot. Because you do want it that hot, and then you want to make sure that you've got just like when you're smoking barbecue. But you're not burning the wood still. What you have is are your charcoal embers, which are as hot as they can get, but you don't have that acridity that comes with burning wood. Backyard barbecue grills and smokers come in all sorts of sizes. What would be ideal uh, if you were going to make a pizza on a backyard grill? Uh, something 
fairly large and substantial, for example, or or just a regular Weber grill? What would what would you be going for if you were let's say I was out I was shopping for a new smoker or grill and I wanted something I could uh, I could make a, a backyard pizza on? What would I look for? I would look for something where you could build a fire offset to your cooking area. And again, this is, like cooking pizza on the grill is, is not ideal, but it can really almost replicate what you get from a wood fire oven. Uh, but you have to be very, very careful. So what you do is that you get your, your oven super hot or your grill super hot, and let's say you're going to cook on your left side. And you would pile up your coals on the right, just like you would if you were, you know, offset smoking something and you didn't have a firebox. And then you want to make sure your grill area is extremely clean, extremely hot, and then greased down, and all the smoke has been cooked off it. So you have a it's just a very well-oiled cooking service. You wait for it to come up to temp. And they sell these interesting pizza plates at, uh, or offset cooking things that you can get at most tool stores like Bose and Home, Home Depot, where there are these little plates that give you indirect heat from the grill. And so you get your pizza on. It's going to stick for a second, you know, on a hot grill. And you don't mess with it while it's sticking. You want it just like a lot of proteins, like it will give away. And if, you're, if your grill's hot enough, it should be like, it should be about 1,000 degrees on the opposite side of where you're cooking. Then it should take less than a minute. And at this point, you just want to obviously move it so the hot edge is on the cold edge. And at this point, what you don't need to worry about is cooking your toppings are at least applying some heat. And that's why at this point, although not ideal in grilling, you need to cover 30, 30 seconds to a minute to make sure that your cheese is melting and, you know, any sort of cold ingredients that you have on top are seeing some sort of, uh, some sort of heat. Okay. Well, let's talk about the home oven. Now, we have an oven that will register up to 600 degrees, but I think that's more than most people have. So let's say you have a standard oven that goes up to 475 or something. What's the best way to make a pizza? So in both circumstances, you'd want to go and get an unfinished paving stone from one of the aforementioned home garden places. Something as big as your bottom level oven will hold. A paving stone such as, you know, these big these things you make, you make uh, backyard sidewalks out of, those, those things? Exactly. Okay. Does it have to be a special stone that takes high heat? I mean, I, I would be concerned if somebody went and just got a stone and put it in there that there could be a problem. Should it? Should you ask or find out, you know, about the high heat possibilities of a stone? They even sell, like, stones that you can buy, like, in supermarkets that are just actually like, almost like pizza oven stones. I have one at home that's round, and you could just throw it in there, and then you let it sit in there for a half hour or something. So is a stone, is that a possibility that it can use anything, or should it be high heat? The only difference is, is that a pizza stone that they'll sell you that's heat-tempered or whatever, that, uh, they use words like that, usually is around 40 to 50 bucks. And a paving stone is about $3. <laughs> nice. I've never seen a paving stone crack, except by somebody dropping it. Wow. So if it just sits in there... And you let it come to temp, so obviously your paving stone goes in while your oven's heating up, and then you let it sit there for a good hour getting hot, and then you don't take it out while it's still hot. I've never seen one break. Okay. Okay. How hot is that paving stone going to be after it's been heating up in the oven? Is it going to be six, 700 degrees, or how hot will it be? Well, here's the other trick, which is not recommended by any manufacturer. All ovens have a cleaning function, and that cleaning function is meant to go probably about 15 to 20% of 
that higher than the factory setting is for the oven. And so oftentimes they're put with locks on it so the oven locks so you can't touch it. So you have to figure out, and you can usually uh, shimmy the lock open with a screwdriver because it's just a simple lock that you put to the side. I could see the lawsuits coming in. (laughs) It works very well. Enough on making pizza today. I was going to talk about the different regional types, but I think we can go into that when we talk about, uh, we're going to talk about pizza restaurants and, you know, and how to buy pizza and how to tell a good place. And I think that, that, in other words, consumption of pizza. And at that point, I think we could talk about Sicilian, Calabrian, Neapolitan, or the, the, the horrible stuff they sell in Milan and call pizza. So uh, you can get better pizza in New York than you can in Northern Italy, at least generally speaking. So why don't we uh, why don't we call it a day on this? This is our first trial at reinstituting these long distance conversations. I hope the technology has not let us down, and uh, that'll be up to Rex. He's, oh, uh, he... I just got I'm about ready to order a pizza. What do you want on yours? Because I'm gonna <laughs> Domino's or something. <laughs> so. <laughs> We will bid uh, bid you farewell until our next episode of our pizza marathon uh, is broadcast. Thank you.